This week on the Back Table Podcast. When you've done these, uh, are you doing, you know, femoral access? Are you doing ipsilateral, contralateral access? How are you typically doing these? Well, Ari does everything through radial access, as you know. Um, even venous procedures to those radials. So, um, I'll create an AV fistula and then go into the vein. I'll let him, I'll let him answer that question. You'll see that at SIR next year. Right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast and more on our free iTunes app. This is Mike Barraza returning as your host. I'm thrilled to welcome back Sonny Bagla and Ari Isaacson uh, here to talk with us about genicular artery embolization. Um, I'd like to thank you both for joining us again. Uh, and if you could, just for the sake of our listeners, remind us uh, where you are and how you got involved with genicular artery embolization. Go ahead and start, Ari. All right, Mike. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be back at the table here. Um, uh, we, I'm at the University of North Carolina, and uh, we got started with genicular artery embolization. It was, it was actually Sonny's idea, and he uh, caught wind of uh, Dr. Akuna, who was doing this uh, procedure in Japan. And he brought it up to us and thought maybe it would be a good idea to do our own trial in the U.S. And so that's, uh, that's how we got started on my end. Yeah, Mike. So I'm at uh, Vascular Institute of Virginia in Northern Virginia. And so we um, came up with this idea back exactly as already mentioned, back in like 2015, uh, worked on getting some grant funding to support a pilot study, and then reached out to Ari. And as you know, we've had a great collaborative relationship doing a number of research studies together. So uh, no better study than uh, looking at knee arthritis and seeing if genicular artery embolization would work together. So we uh, joined forces and started the study back. It's been about a year now since uh, we really got the study going and uh, completed enrollment uh, back in January of this year. Yeah, you guys had some exciting data to present this year at uh, at SIR. And actually, I, I noticed you actually had a little bit you know, when you had gotten started last year that you and Rachel had presented. Uh, just to give us uh, you know, a better idea of you know, where you started with this. I mean, I, yeah, I think a lot of us are familiar with, uh, you know, studies or even just doing the procedure for, uh, you know, for hemorthrosis or pseudoaneurysms after arthroplasty. But at the time you took this on, what was just the general status of GAE in the literature. So are you going to take that one first? Yeah, go for it. All right. So, you know, at the time when we started, um, there was really li- very limited research, just the pilot study from Dr. Kuno in Japan. And I think our biggest challenge was really trying to separate the effects of the embolization on the knee based on the two different types of embolics he was using. You know, he was using an antibiotic and a permanent embolic, either one in subset of patients he had treated. Well, the antibiotic is called imipenem silostatin, or it's yeah, marketed here in the U.S. Yeah, it's primaxin. And so in Japan and in Asia, they use antibiotics as a temporary particulate embolic. Okay. It acts sort of like a 50 to 70 micron particle. And so he used that, but then he had also used uh, permanent embolic, small micron, uh, 75 micron embozine particles in some patients. So we were trying to figure out here when we started the study, like, where should we go with this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I read the uh, imipenem silastin mixture. I, I actually didn't even, uh, I didn't know that they were using that as an embolic until then. Uh, actually, and I think the majority of the patients actually got that there. Um, uh, and then you know, after that, I read there was, um, let's see, let me find it here. Uh, 
the midterm clinical outcomes and MR imaging changes after transcatheter arterial mobilization as treatment for mild to moderate osteoarthritis. Uh, Akuno and, and his group had published that. Let's see, that was in uh, July 2017 is when they published Oh, oh his, his last uh, paper, yeah, with the larger... Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. They, they actually had data going all the way out to, to three years. They followed these patients and the results were really good. Um, would you guys like to, to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, I think one of the things that we're excited about... I mean, I, I think first, we, you know, just to take a step back to grasp the potential of this procedure, it's it's really huge. I mean, we're talking about um, a, a group of, po- of patients that's um, humongous. Is you know, we get excited about prostate embolization, but this is uh, just as big, if not bigger. Um, you know, men and women all experience uh, osteoarthritic knee pain, and so, um, and and we're um, we're dealing with a problem. Um, that is, uh, it's someone has to do with treatment, right? So, um, the ultimate treatment for osteoarthritis for the knee is uh, total knee arthroplasty. Uh, the, the problem with total knee arthroplasty is that it's, it's a great uh, surgery for that purpose, but it has a lifespan and to redo is very difficult. So a lot of times when younger patients are coming in, uh, they're having to, uh, kind of put off they're trying the, their orthopods and primary care folks are trying to put off them going for total knee arthroplasty by using other treatments, conservative and minimally invasive, uh, lots of medications, corticosteroid shots, uh, things like Synvisc, which is a hyaluronic acid injection. Um, and the whole idea is just to get these patients through as many years as they can until these treatments are no longer effective, and, and then they go for total knee arthroplasty. So what we're trying to do here is develop another alternative uh, that can buy people time. And like you said, uh, Mike, it could, there's there's suggestion that it may be very durable, that um, a single uh, procedure may last several years. And we don't even know, it, may, it might be repeatable. Right? Uh, we don't know that yet. And so um, I think that's what's exciting about it. And, and the other thing I'd mention about this that is kind of different than prostate embolization is um, with prostate embolization, we are that uh, we're developing or we have developed a procedure that is somewhat in competition with what urology already provides. For this type of procedure, actually, we're, we're not really competing with orthopods. We're um, providing something that may be very useful to them in their practice. And so uh, that helps us as far as uh, research goes and developing the procedure to have them completely on board with us uh, in order to and, and creating a partnership that's beneficial to both of us. Yeah, Mike, I think, you know, Ari, it's a great point here is that collaborative effect, uh, you know, you can really work together to actually see where this procedure may fit in the treatment of patients with knee pain. And just to add to what Ari said about, you know, treatments of patients who are younger with knee pain and even older patients, most of these patients initially treated with pain medications. And as you know, with the opioid epidemic in the United States, trying to get away from the overuse of pain medications for things like arthritis is really critical for us honestly, as a society to be involved in, whether it's Society of Interventional Radiology and Interventional Radiology as a whole, to really develop procedures where we can, you know, palliate patients so they don't need this medical therapy. Um, It is not without significant risk. I mean, many of the studies, if you look at over the past few years, have shown that NSAID-related treatment, opioid-related treatment are responsible for over 15,000 deaths annually just in patients who are treated with osteoarthritis. And as Ari mentioned, many of these patients are getting knee injections, and there are numerous studies which show corticosteroid injections in the knee are no better than placebo. And so we're still doing millions of these injections every year in the U.S., treating people with pain medications. So we don't really have great options, and I think the orthopedic community already recognizes that. 
Um, and they know that knee arthroplasty works, especially in an older population. But the goal here, I think, would be trying, of course, treat this less invasively and maybe delay an arthroplasty until it's absolutely needed. Yeah, that was a, a really interesting point that I got from the interview that you did, Sonny, with Interventional News. I didn't realize, you know, the basically the degree of, of morbidity and mortality that, that we do see from NSAID treatment. Um, the other thing I didn't really identify until talking to the two of you was uh, the potential for this is a collaborative effort, effort rather than, uh, you know, a competitive one like we see with prostatic artery embolization. Um, so I know, of course, you know, we still have a lot of work to do to really select the right patients for this. But right now, what are the types of patients that you're looking for for this procedure? Yes, we're, we're, you know, interestingly, so as part of the clinical study, of course, and, and our subsequent clinical study, we are looking for patients who have at least a pain of, say, 5 out of 10 on a pain scale or 50 out of 100 on a pain scale, and then patients who failed some conservative therapy. So they tried pain medications, injections, et cetera, and they failed them. So they didn't work for a durable amount of time, and these patients are still having the pain interfere with their daily life. We've not really uh, narrowed down the criteria to a certain age range, let's say, you know, a younger age range um, of patients who have arthritis. We haven't narrowed it down to certain BMIs, which of course may affect outcomes in terms of the obese population versus non-obese population. Um, But I think those are things we'll probably look at in the future. But at this point, patients who have, you know, typical osteoarthritis-related symptoms. um, But one thing we actually look for, which is fairly unique, and, and Ari can talk to this as well, is is palpable pain. We don't just want a patient who comes in and says, you know, my whole knee hurts. We're looking really for patients who can isolate where that pain is in the okay. knee. And, that, and that's really critical. And Ari can probably talk about that, I think, with respect to the procedure and why that focal area of pain um, is important. Yeah, Ari, in addition to that, when, when you discuss it, touch on, if you don't mind, the MRI findings. Uh, you guys had some very interesting stuff uh, to report on that as well. Yeah, so um, I, you know, I think to, to what's the the point that Sunny's making is that this is a targeted therapy. Um, it's not we're not treating the whole knee. You know, we are locating where the pain is uh, via physical examination, and then we're targeting that area of the knee with our embolization. And so that's why it's important to be able to localize the pain because if you can't localize the pain, then targeting you know what are you targeting? And it can't target the whole knee. As far as the MRI findings, so what we found um, afterward is that on the post, so we did pre-MRI with contrast and post-MRI with contrast. And what we found was we evaluated the synovial enhancement before and after, and we found significant changes in the synovial enhancement, decrease in enhancement afterwards, um, suggesting, you know, kind of what we know that we're blocking off the blood supply to the synovium there. With um, MRI findings, what's interesting is, you know, we found decreased synovial scores in patients before and after the procedure. And by that, I mean decreased synovial thickness, decreased enhancement, and decreased joint effusions. And we presented that data at SIR. And what was really interesting is we found that with the procedure we're doing, we can actually decrease this, if you will, synovial score, for lack of a better word. And what that really means is, you know, we're targeting with this therapy, like Ari said, it's a very targeted therapy. We're targeting the area of synovium that is inflamed and is believed to be causing the pain. Because that's really the basic principle of genicular artery embolization. The knee joint develops this inflammation early on in osteoarthritis. You get this neovascularity. This neovascularity stimulates sensitivity of nerve fibers. And it's that neovascularity, which we never really recognized before, 
is actually the cause of pain. And so what we're hoping through this research and our experience is that by blocking these small capillaries, we're actually going to reduce the pain in and around the knee. It'd be really interesting to see if, you know, these findings correlate to anything on angiography. Like if you can see more tumor blush, I guess before we get into that, yeah, um, let's talk about the anatomy a little bit. Uh, I had no idea how complex the anatomy was until I read um, your abstract from SIR uh, about the classification that you guys are doing. Yeah. Our colleague, Dr. Pachowiak, Rachel Pachowiak, who you know, she presented yeah. uh, an anatomical classification uh, for the arterial anatomy of the knee. And what's interesting about it is, you know, Arjen and myself talk about what's more complicated, the selective catheterization of prostatic arteries or geniculant arteries. And, you know, there really are three arteries on the medial side and three on the lateral side of the knee. But there are certain challenges um, that you encounter. One is that when the superior geniculate arteries come off at a common trunk, the superior medial and superior lateral, that is, when they come off at a common trunk, they often come off with a very short trunk before they bifurcate medial and lateral. And they come off in sort of a reverse uh, angle from what the popliteal artery is. So that probably tends to be the most challenging. I think, Ari, maybe you could speak to some, some of the other issues with arterial anatomy of the knee. Yeah. So I find personally, I find one of the most challenging situations for from when dealing with microcatheters is getting into a small artery from a bigger or a pretty big artery. Um, and to me, it's a lot easier, like when we're doing prostatic artery embolization to go from smaller to smaller, even if it's a hard angle, it's still easier to do. So here you are, you're coming off the SFA and you're trying to get into these small geniculate arteries and they can come off at extreme angles. So it's it's not an easy, it's not, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not a, a Yuffie, um, yeah. but uh, it's another hard one, but that's good. It's good for, uh, you know, I mean, we want hard procedures because that's what we're good at and right. that's, how we, that's how we keep it, kind of keep it within IR. Um, so uh, it can be very challenging. You, you may need to use uh, angled catheters. You may need to use tip deflecting catheters uh, to get in, uh, but, um, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's not an easy uh, procedure. Yeah, and we used, uh, for these cases, we actually used a pre-shaped catheter as our first go-to catheter for all the cases. And then if for some reason that didn't work, then we'd go to a non-pre-shaped catheter. And Ari's right, that going from a large artery where your microwire is sort of swimming in the popliteal artery can definitely be a challenge. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I guess I didn't, I should know this having gone to medical school uh, and radiology residency, but I didn't realize we're looking for six different potential branches. Um when you are targeting these patients, you know, say we're dealing with medial knee pain, how are you targeting these arteries from a therapeutic standpoint? Yeah, so what we're doing is if someone has medial knee pain, we will only really focus on the medial genicular arteries. So there are three of them, three main medial genicular arteries. One is the descending genicular artery or the DGA. And then there's a superior medial and an inferior medial genicular artery. And invariably, they can be present uh, well, invariably or variably, they can be present to a varying degree. So if you have a large uh, DGA, for example, your superior medial geniculate artery may not be as large and may not feed the medial synovium to the degree that the DGA would be. And the same for the inferior medial. So you oftentimes will have a dominant vessel that's present and the other vessels to a varying degree. And what we do is we we actually just palpate where the patient's pain is beforehand and target that area of synovium that we that we that corresponds to the area of pain. 
that probably helps what would otherwise be a very challenging endpoint uh, when you have this many arteries. Um, so, you know, I know it's also difficult because right now we're, we're looking at, at really just the symptomatic patients, but, you know, what are some of the findings that you've seen uh, thus far on angiography that, that to you look abnormal? So, Mike, you know, you mentioned something just now that's really interesting. You, you talked about the endpoint, and I think that's really important to talk about for this procedure um, because it's different, you know, coming from, you know, if you're comparing to prosthetic artery embolization. So for PAE, we're, we're going to stasis. That's the, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case for geniculate artery embolization. In fact, it's, it's kind of delicate. It's, uh, it's more delicate than prostate embolization even. And uh, what we're doing is we're just trying to prune the arteries and basically decrease the synovial blush or eliminate it. But you really want to try to keep the arteries open, just eliminate the blush. And to do that, it's a, like I said, it's a really kind of fine line. And so uh, the way that we we've been doing this procedure is uh, we dilute our particles a lot and we deliver set aliquots and then do angiography to look again. And so maybe we'll, and and it's a very small amount. It may be um, like 0.2 cc's in a given time and then redo angiography. One of the nice things about this procedure, you really don't have to worry about uh, your radiation exposure as much as you would if you were looking at the torso because, you know, you're on an extremity, so you're keeping your radiation low. So you can do DSA over and over and over again and still have low uh, totals at the end of your case. Um, but that's kind of how we do it. It's, it's um, like 0.2 aliquots and then keep repeating angiography to see what the synovial blush looks like. Um, as far as uh, the appearance that you asked about, the angi- angiographic appearance, uh, initially what you should see is you should see a, um, a synovial blush. And sometimes it can be a little subtle until you get real selective. When you get real selective, it'll it'll become obvious. Um, but initially, it may be subtle, and so that's why we'll select. Like we were talking about, if the patient has medial knee pain, we'll select each of the medial arteries and examine which ones are involved, and most likely embolize all of them if they're if they're present. Um, but but usually you see a synovial uh, blush, and then when you're done, hopefully you don't see that synovial blush anymore. But the, the arteries are still patent. Remind me again what you're using for your embolic agent. Yeah, so for our study, um, we were using uh, embozine, and we were using um, 175 or 100 micron uh, embozine. Um, I, I think we switched to a little bit of a, of a larger, we went from 75 to 100, kind of mid, uh, towards the end of the study, I think, just to because we felt like it was adequate and, and a little bit less um, likely to cause any uh, complications. Okay. Uh, now, Sonny, I'd read in the, uh, the Akuno study that they had done some of these as, as bilateral procedures. Are you guys treating one leg at a time or are the new patients so far that you've treated both legs? Yeah, so so far uh, as part of the clinical study, it's all been unilateral one leg. Um, it does raise an interesting concept, though. Myself and Ari have both talked about we follow these patients for their pain improvement, and we'll talk about their improvement, I guess, next. But for the ones that have had pretty dramatic improvement, let's say, oftentimes they're still left with a significant degree of, degree of disability in the other knee. And that limits their overall disability. So when you're assessing these patients in follow-up, you would have liked to have treated both knees because they would have been more functional and you really would probably get a better overall result. Um, it's often difficult times, you probably know, you know, for a patient to say, listen, my right knee is better, but I'm still having difficulty walking because now I'm limping because of my left knee. So um, we've only been treating patients so far one knee. Um, but I think in future, of course, we're going to run into a situation where someone's already been treated on one side and needs treatment on the other. 
That makes perfect sense. And also, uh, if anything, though, it gives you a nice reminder that this this really sounds like it's working. You know, it's certainly not a placebo effect when, you know, they're comparing this to their other leg. Could you tell me what these results have been like? I know you, you just talked about the improvement that they've had. It's funny. Funny you should use the word placebo, right, Ari? <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> uh, all because our, 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 just before we go into the results, our next study, which should be kicking off in the next couple of weeks here, is, uh, with enrollment is a randomized placebo-controlled study. So uh, our next study will involve just making sure that there is no placebo effect <laughs> because as excited as Ari and I and, and Rachel are about these results, uh, we have to make sure that, that of course, there is no placebo effect because it's with any pain study, right? That's, that's the one right. Achilles heel that we'll be up against is people will say with a pain or palliative care study that there's a placebo effect. And so uh, we, we will be launching that. But our, our initial results really have been pretty astonishing. You know, um, like we mentioned earlier, we have enrolled in complete enrollment in January of this year. And we expect our last patient's uh, final um, uh, pain scales and follow-up to be completed in July of this year. Um, so we're really excited for that. And we published, uh, sorry, we presented our interim results at the SIR meeting this year in L.A., and overall, it was really pretty astonishing. We had about a 70% overall reduction in pain when you take all of our patients. And what's, what's really impressive about that is that even includes the patients, of course, who did not have an improvement. So there were only a couple patients who did not have improvement after uh, the procedure at all. But overall, the vast majority of patients did. Uh, and that improvement in pain uh, was pretty astonishing. So uh, we're excited about that. Uh, we're excited about the results. And, and Ari can probably talk a little bit, too, about the safety, because I think one thing we found really was was the procedure was generally very safe as well. Yeah, I'm just going to bring up one more thing. I thought it was cool that you guys used more than one uh, pain scale. I mean, you used WOMAC, you used the visual assessment score, and, you know, it, it was uh, a good result of both. I thought that was a, yeah. a really cool addition. Yeah, so, like, uh, one good... A piece of advice is if you're going to do a pilot, uh, do a study, and this is a pilot study, and there's a previous pilot study on the same <laughs> procedure, <laughs> it's a good idea to look at what they did and maybe consider using that, what they did again. Um, exactly. And so that's that's kind of how we designed our pilot studies. We looked at Akuna's pilot study, Dr. Akuna, and, uh, and we did this similar thing. And so we use both the visual analog scale and the Womack, the Womack scale. Um, so, but in regard uh, to complications, so one thing that we see, you know, almost in every patient is that using a permanent embolic, you're most likely going to get some degree of non-target embolization to the skin. Um, that's going to result in a visual, a um, visible rash or purpura or something. But it, it all uh, resolved. They all resolve within weeks to m- months um, after the procedure. Um, the other things that we saw were very minor. We had, we did have, we did see that we had a, a, um, temporary kind of neuropraxia, uh, associated with the procedure, um, that resolved on its own. But that was kind of when we were considering whether we should be, what size particles we should be using. Um, and there's some anatomy there that suggests that maybe some uh, branch of the tibial nerve might be in the region where we're embolizing. Um, and so, um, we, uh, that's when we increased the size and, uh, I, but it was, a, it's a rare occurrence. And, um, I think using larger particles, we wouldn't see that Dr. Kuna didn't report any cases of that in his paper. Um, 
And actually, when he used imipenicillostatin, um, he he didn't get he didn't even get the skin uh, discoloration. Uh, so that was something that was specific to the permanent embolic. But I think we might have something up our sleeve for that, maybe an ice bag or something that would work. Yeah, I think, Mike, that's a really good point. Like Ari mentions is, you know, when we, and this goes back to what we were first thinking about when we were designing the study, is, you know, we're up against, should we use Primaxin or Imipenem and, or should we use a permanent embolic? And myself and Ari have a lot of experience, of course, doing research with embolics and not necessarily with in the pharma world. And from a practical standpoint, it would have been very difficult for us to get a study up off the ground uh, utilizing antibiotic as a temporary embolic because in the U.S., well, it's not even mainstay to do that. Um, there aren't even really any ongoing clinical trials assessing this. And so for us, we were really interested in let's stick with what we know and we know embolics well. So why don't we focus on doing a study with this? And this is where I think we're going to come up with different um, AEs or adverse events or different outcomes perhaps than the Acuna right. group. Um, and I think those are things that we're going to follow and hopefully publish and, and, and uh, let everybody know what we, what our experience is at least with permanent embolics. Something else to mention that's exciting though, I think is that a lot of companies or several companies are focusing on um, creating temporary embolics now. Yeah. And so there may be a product soon out there that's uh, similar to Primax and, but that's actually a embolic that has a very short, uh, life uh, before it's reabsorbed and may work very well for this procedure. And we'll be using, even Mike, for our second study, uh, like I mentioned, we'll be using actually a, a um, resorbable embolic uh, for our second study. So that may, that may actually have some uh, further application beyond what we've done. Okay. That's exciting. Um, one question I had forgotten to ask uh, when you've done these, uh, are you doing, you know, Femoral access, you're doing ipsilateral, contralateral access. How are you typically doing these? Well, Ari does everything through radial access, as you know. Um, even venous procedures, he goes radial. So, um, I'll create an AV fistula and then go into the vein. I'll let him, I'll let him answer that question. You'll see that in SIR next year. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're doing this contralateral femoral access. Um, you you know I it's funny I was all excited to do ipsilateral femoral axis now I don't, I don't do PAD at my place so I don't have a lot of experience going down the leg yeah it's a <laughs> so great story I, yeah I got all excited to do this I was gonna do ipsilateral much <laughs> and, we, and we tried Mike to talk him off the ledge before he did his first integrate access yes. for knee embolization right um, so, but you know the challenge right these patients. Some of these patients who have arthritis, of course, our average BMI in our study group is 35. So it borders, you know, class one, class two obesity. So even in, obviously, in the PAD population where integrate is a great idea for people who are thinner, uh, it can be challenging in, in these types of patients. Right, Ari? Yeah. So with this patient's panis present, I had to make like a, I was coming in perpendicular to, to the artery. It was like an A-line. Um, right. It just wasn't working out. So I learned my lesson on that first patient. <laughs> it was contralateral femoral access with a nice long sheath going up and over. Gets a good uh, stable access and be able to shoot angi- angiograms through the sheath around the catheter, which is very helpful. Yeah. Well, it, it may make sense in the future, you know, if we start getting to the point where we're doing both legs at the same time, then you'll have your radial day, my friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, interestingly, I was, I was thinking about it when you were talking about, you know, these challenging angles. Yeah. 
that you know you're getting. I mean, you could see yourself having a good argument for a retrograde access on certain ones of these, but you'd have to, boy, you'd have to really want it. Yeah, we thought we talked about that actually. So you know, retrograde, you know, bipedal access, of course. Right. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, we talked about that. I think with good three French access and just doing a microcatheter alone. Mm-hmm. That would that would be nice. Um, the only the only real risk is, of course, if the procedure takes forty five minutes or an hour. Right. Of course, you risk trashing that pedal artery just for you know palliating somebody's knee pain and maybe exchanging resting foot pain. But yeah, I feel foolish. Um, <laughs> no, no, we we because of course you know, again like we do a fair amount of pedal access for our PAD patients, but it's it's a really good option. I mean, I think um, it's something to of course think about in the future. And in Japan, they do do three French access and then just use the microcatheter and then it's a handhold. So they don't even um, use four or five, six French access. Um, with myself and Ari, we tend to use traditional access up and right. over sheath. And it, and it does work great. I mean, the torqueability, I think, even with a long sheath, um, we use, you know, for example, like a 70 cm sheath and leave it in the mid SFA or distal SFA. It allows you good enough torqueability with your microcatheter. And like Ari said, imaging around the catheter helps too. Okay. Um, one final question is is just, you know, the post-procedure management. I mean, my guess would be, Sonny, that this is a great procedure for uh, an outpatient setting. What has your experience been like, you know, from the time you pull out the catheter? Yeah, so it's been great. I mean, I'd say, I mean, frankly, for outpatient or even for, you know, outpatient hospital type stay, it is... Um, it's a great procedure and, you know, they come in, um, the procedure I'd say on average takes hour, an hour and a half or so, um, you know, the typical two hour bed rest afterwards and they go home. And what's nice about this is unlike say a fibroid patient, even an outpatient fibroid patient where you're sending home on a, on a regimen, if you will, they may only need to take some of their NSAID medications or pain medications for a day or two. And they start to see relief pretty quickly over the first few days. So from an outpatient perspective, it's great because they can, you know, one, they come in, they go home the same day and they're a fairly, you know, they're a happy patient because they're getting pain improvement pretty quickly. I mean, as part of the study, we saw all of our patients at 24 hours and a lot of these patients already had pain improvement by then. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really a, a really pretty amazing procedure. I think one of the things is, as we work through this is to figure out, well, are there, are there better ways uh, to do the procedure uh, who are the patients we're going to obviously do the procedure on that are going to get a better outcome. Um, but overall, for an outpatient type procedure, it's really an ideal type of procedure. All right, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, in addition to, you know, your ongoing studies and the, and the upcoming study about, uh, you know, making sure this isn't a placebo effect, you know, what are the next steps from a research standpoint, um, you know, standing between where we are now and making this a mainstream procedure? Yeah, so uh, I mean, there's there's kind of standard steps I think that for every procedure that have to be taken. So um, in this case, you know, usually you have to do some kind of animal study first. In this case, we okay. were able to bypass that because Dr. Acuna had human data already available, and so we were able. So just to take a step back, this was a investigational device um, exemption study. So okay. our the regulatory process to get this going started with a, a sending an application to the FDA for that IDE for this study. So we did that. Um, and we, you know, we were able to convince them based upon the fact that Dr. Acuna had uh, done his research, had published his research already, and that the same procedure was being used for hemarthrosis, as you mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, um, that they, they said, okay, you can go ahead and do this pilot study with an IDE. So that's the first step is to do a pilot study and establish some data. 
after you've done a pilot study, the next step may be what we're doing next, which is a comparative study to placebo, especially in pain uh, for, for pain treatments. That's, that's important. And then the step after that is going to be the pivotal study. And the pivotal study is what the FDA um, wants to see to give an embolic an indication uh, for this procedure. And that's kind of the pathway that you, you, know, you have to take to get a procedure from experimental to into uh, standard of care. Um, and so the next step for us after we do this is hopefully to uh, develop some kind of multi-center trial that um, gives the FDA enough data to say, you know, we'll give an indication to whichever embolic is being used for that trial. Yeah, I think, Mike, you hit it right on the head. You know, this, taking this orderly approach, I think, will hopefully allow us to get this not just approved by the FDA faster than I'd say we we did with prostate organization, mm-hmm. but also overcome that hurdle with orthopedic surgeons, because it'll be one thing to get approval for a device. But myself, Ari, Rachel, we're all interested in making sure that the orthopedic community really recognizes this as a procedure that they can use for their patients. You know, and they can refer them happily knowing that it fits within their normal algorithm for knee pain. And so that may take studies beyond what it will take just to get a device approved. So it could be a comparative study against another procedure that's already offered or medical therapy. And so Ari, myself, and Rachel are actually working with our orthopedic colleagues to help guide us on what will really make the biggest impact in the orthopedic world. Yeah, so, sorry, one more thought on that along those lines is that, um, you know, as I was talking, I was kind of thinking to myself also that when just because the FDA gives an indication and, and even if the orthopods buy in, we still, a procedure can't be standard of care until the insurance companies buy in, right? Because that's sure. kind of the challenge we're facing with PAE right now. Um, and so that's another reason to make sure that you go through the right channel, you know, steps of research and, and have the right data. Um, and I think we should be able to overcome that challenge easier with this procedure than with PAE, um, because I think uh, it's it'll be much easier to get a randomized controlled trial done, a comparative randomized controlled trial, like Sunny was mentioning, against another therapy um, and, and get that data that the insurance companies will use to determine that it's not an investigational procedure anymore. Yeah, I think it's just a really smart, unique approach to doing this. And, and I think it uh, bodes well for the future of this procedure, the way you guys are approaching this, you know, alongside our orthopedic colleagues. Uh, it may also be worth mentioning, you know, from your cost effectiveness study that this is actually less expensive than some of the injections. Did I read that correctly? Well, I, I, I think it depends if you take into account so we got to think about the durability of this uh, procedure. Um, hopefully, you know, we're from the, what the data is suggesting that the initial data suggests that this treatment may have years of durability. Yeah. If it has years of durability, then it potentially could um, be cheaper than a series of injections, depending on what those injections are. But the other thing to take into account are complications. And mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, it's it's difficult to improve. You have to prove. You have to use some like a simulation type of uh, methodology, like um, uh, the Monte Carlo simulation or, or something like that. But you can, um, if you look at what the known complications are for different things like injections and for medications, and what the complications are for GAE, and you wrap the you you determine the costs of those complications. Um, on our, in our preliminary examination of that, we found that um, GAE has some great benefits as far as uh, costs go. 
yeah, it's certainly less expensive than, than fixing a GI bleed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, guys, this is this is really exciting stuff, and, and I really look forward to seeing how this plays out. What else have uh, have I not gone over that you guys would like to cover? Sure, uh, Mike. I think it's probably one more thing, and, and Ari probably touched on this about going through sort of the right channels of research. Is you know th- we don't know yet if this is a procedure that's going to work just on people before knee replacement. And I think that's something we're also looking into is what about patients after knee replacement? I think that's one of the areas that we're already starting to uh, plan and uh, plan our study for, which is the patients who've had knee replacements who also still have residual pain. Uh, There's a good 10 to 20% of patients who get knee replacements who unfortunately still have pain. And I think this is a nice target for us also, because our goal as as Ari and I mentioned earlier is work with the orthopedic surgeons to see where they have limitations, where they don't see their... Uh, treatment options being the best and try and fill in there. And okay. I think, um, so it's another avenue that hopefully we could, we'll be researching and looking into as well. Before we sign off, can we talk a little bit about stream 2.0? No. Okay. Sorry. We're signing off. Thanks everyone. All right. yeah. uh, so I went to, I went to stream 1.0 and, uh, you know, for everybody out there listening, I mean, it was fantastic. I actually have, my hat right in front of me. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, it was incredible. It was, you know, a, a really multidisciplinary, uh, comprehensive approach to this. I mean, you know, I thought it was incredible that you guys had uh, some lawyers there talk about the medical legal aspects. Uh, Sonny, the, the big standout for me was going through all the different cases. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know how many it ended up being just to get a better handle on the anatomy. Uh, could you tell us a bit about Stream 2.0? I mean, How's it going to differ from the first? I mean, I actually am considering coming back. Well, Ari's going to have a stronger stream this time. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Hashtag like a racehorse. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You said that, Mike. We, uh, we had a great time at the meeting, myself and Ari, too, and it was a new experience for us um, coordinating a meeting like this. And we, we were lucky. We really had a great group of speakers. And, of course, I mean, the, the people who attended the meeting, you have really dedicated people interventionalists who are coming to learn a specific procedure and really nothing else and all the ins and outs of the procedure, the clinical, the like you mentioned, the legal and bollocks. I mean, there's so much detail that goes into this um, to treating men with BPH. And so Ari and I have worked on designing uh, a course now with even more features in the second course than the first. We're spending more time on things like advanced cases and difficult anatomy. Uh, we're spending more time on quizzes. As you probably remember, we did all these live quizzes, you know, uh, interactivity. So, so people could, um, people could respond via their cell phones. So we have more of those, uh, the second time around. Uh, and we even changed up some speakers. So we have some other speakers as well. And maybe Ari can probably talk about that as yeah, well. Some exciting names on there. Yeah. So we are, um, so one, one big difference is that we've extended it to a day and a half, um, I think previously we had a lot of content and we did our best to get through all of it, but it seemed kind of rushed at times. And so we've uh, extended, given us an extra half day in the Sunday morning to really focus on that stuff that Sonny's talking about, the advanced cases and the difficult anatomy and go through lots of cases. Um, As far as speakers go, we are fortunate to have uh, Riyadh Salem uh, join us. He's going to be talking about uh, Y90 90 of the prostate. That's correct. Um, (laughs) Uh, no, he's going to give us his experience with his clinical trial and just his PAE experience. Um, we also um, are looking forward to uh, potentially having more international faculty as well. 
Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's exciting to, um, to include these folks and, and get uh, more opinions. Uh, we also, something else that, that will be interesting is we have uh, more interest now from imaging sponsors. And so we are going to have um, uh, some more kind of uh, demonstrations and satellite um, presentations from imaging companies so that, because obviously imaging is a, is a somewhat important role. Totally. I think it'd be a great addition. Yeah. Um, and so we can uh, learn what the, what the latest and greatest tools that are out there are to be able to do PAE. Yeah. So I still all, can't decide yes. which one of you is right uh, about um, if you have to have cone beam or you can do it on a C arm. <laughs> we'll have that debate again for you, Mike. I like that. You know, it's funny. It's, it's, you, you were, you know, you mentioned if you want to think about going back to the meeting again, I, Ari and I make this joke because we talk all the time and share, you know, interesting cases. And I can tell you after, you know, hundreds of cases between the two of us and with PA, it seems like, and I told one of my texts the other day is no matter what, it seems like every case still has different anatomy than the previous. And we're still learning. Like as we do cases, I mean, I just, I just told Ari the other day, I had a, somebody with congenital absence of the anterior division of the iliac artery during a prostate embo. And so the anatomy is all messed up. And I think, when you go to one of these courses and you learn something about how to do a procedure like this, you only know what you know. And then as years go on, we start to learn more and more. Everybody learns more and more. And that's why it's great to learn from different people. And so, you know, people like Riyadh, for example, who's, you know, obviously an expert in embolization would be great to hear him share his experiences. And so you're going to get, you know, overall, I think a better learning experience as this course goes on year after year. That's exciting. Well, uh, thank you guys for your time, both on GAE and, and for talking to us about stream. Um, is there anything else you guys would like to add? Yeah, I think one more thing is that, uh, we next, I think in the next stream, we're going to change it to something called stream SK. Um, and I think we're going to be, uh, including some GAE content in that, in the next course. Nice. That's um, exciting. Yeah, so if you can imagine the logo, it'll have MSK as one kind of one color, and the rest of it. Is, <laughs> so, um, but uh, but you know, it's um, we're excited. We're really excited about Genicut Artery, and we think um, it's going to be it, it really as of now. It looks like it could be the next biggest thing in IR. I agree. I think it's going to be huge. It, it 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 certainly seems to deliver a bit more on the excitement than you know we all thought when we heard about bariatric embolization. I think this actually has real staying power. Yeah, yeah I think so. Hey, Mike. Too on a separate note, both yourself and Aaron, you guys are doing a great job at Backtable. Uh, you're bringing uh, knowledge to the whole IR community. Um, just you know, utilizing all the knowledge of the IRs out there who are practicing on a day by day basis. But more important than that, you guys are bringing a lot of excitement. You know, every day people talk about hearing your guys' podcasts and they get more excited about the field of interventional radiology. So you guys are doing a great job contributing to that. Thank you, Sonny. We appreciate that. It's, it's been exciting for us, too. I mean, we're all learning. Um, but, you know, we couldn't do any of this without contributors like the two of you. Uh, and we really appreciate it. <laughs>